And Father, we thank you for the reality of the fact that we can stand before you today, robed in the righteousness of Christ, positioned in the heavenlies, all by grace and all by your love and your faithful work at the cross. Father, would you continue to grow us in our understanding of what it means to be a new creation in Christ, to have our sin forgiven, and to be your children. And Father, we do want to stand out as bright lights in this world. It is a dark world, and it is a time for the church to shine brightly. Would you show us how to live? Allow the Holy Spirit to work in us. May we freely yield ourselves over to the authority of your word, to the enlightening work of the Holy Spirit, as it begins to make sense to us and you begin to convict us and you work in us and the preaching of the word does its work. I thank you for these times, how we gather regularly, weekly, in this place, much the same routine. May it just be a staple of our lives. May it be our lifeline, Father. Gathering with brothers and sisters, praising together, praying together, receiving the word together. We need it. We ask for you to accomplish your purposes in Jesus' name. Amen. And you may be seated. Well, I have to tell you as we begin this morning that you have a bit of a worried pastor. Um, Now, before you tell me to read back in Matthew 6 and become a bird watcher or recommend that I click online and listen to some of my own messages from Matthew 6 where we're told not to be anxious, um, I think at some level it's a healthy worry. It's not the kind of worry where I'm worried about paying the bills. It's it's not the kind of worry that, you know... um, I just don't know how to replace my vehicle when this one wears out. Things that tend to press in upon us. But nonetheless, it's a worry. And I'm worried about myself and I'm worried about our congregation. And in a way this morning, I want you to become worried about yourself. It's, it's the kind of worry that as we have studied discipleship in chapter 10 of Matthew, and I invite you to turn there as we work our way through this great gospel. I'm worried that this incredible, confrontive, powerful teaching of Christ that we've been in for four or five weeks, Dr. Shupi started it, and then I've finished it after coming home from vacation, and chapter 10 has taken us about a month to deal with, and And it's hard teaching. And I'm worried that to move on into chapter 11 is a little bit like watching an evening news show about some kind of earthquake or something in India or Turkey and and then thinking, that's really too bad, that's really profound. Um, And then clicking to something a little more palatable, that's a little more passive, comforting ourselves with entertainment and just kind of moving on and... I'm a little bit worried that we can't do that. I think that 
Christ's call to discipleship. And in chapter 10, you well know by now that Jesus is specifically teaching the 12. He's sending them out on this missions trip. We know that this confrontive teaching is its very abrupt. It's very profound and powerful. It is predictive. We've talked about this passage being somewhat telescopic. That is, that it is, it is Jesus teaching 12 disciples in the moment to send them out on a trip. But we know that as they went out on that trip, that much of what Jesus said remained unfulfilled. And that even by the end of chapter 10, he's changing his pronoun rulings and he's talking about whoever would follow after me, whoever would be my disciple, this is what's going to happen. And I'm a little bit afraid and worried that we as a church think that chapter 10 was just a really good chapter for Tom and Heidi Jesserin as they head to Nigeria. Their disciples, missionaries, they've taken that step to a whole new level. And that's who Jesus is talking to. I just don't think the passage gives us permission to think like that. I think that Jesus is talking to those who name his name, Those who say, I am a follower of Christ. I am a disciple. A disciple is a learner. Someone who follows a teacher. And Jesus is giving specific instruction. And and so, this week, instead of moving on into chapter 11, I thought that it would be good for us to just review chapter 10. And I'm maybe worried about myself is what brought this on, but maybe you could be worried about yourself by the end of the message. I'm just worried that I'm not really living this stuff out. You can preach it, but preaching's not living. And you can hear it, but hearing's not living. And I just think that we can't just change the channel and just begin to entertain ourselves with something else. And so this morning, I want to ask and answer one question. It's the question that's been rolling through my mind as we talk about the demands of being a disciple and all of these difficult things that Jesus predicts will happen to us if we name the name of Christ and we're born again and we've been to the cross. And yes, it's a grace system. There is by no merit of our own are we saved. It is only by the blood of Christ, only by faith, receiving the free gift of salvation. And he wipes away our sin with his blood and he gives us his righteousness and he stands in for us and takes our penalty. And it's all grace. And it's not works. And I'm not, I'm not even talking about trying to find ways that we can upset our lives as you read this stuff. But Jesus says that this is what it's going to be if you're my disciple. This is what you have to do. And this is what it's going to look like. And I'm kind of worried that my life doesn't really look like that. And so I have to wonder why. And I'm worried that my church doesn't look like that. I want us to be disciples of Jesus Christ. No turning back, looking forward, following Christ, following pastors who follow Christ. And so let's ask this question. As Jesus teaches us about being a disciple, is it really worth it if this is true? And it is true. It is being defined as being a disciple. So when I say, is it really worth it? I'm saying, is it really worth it to be a disciple if being a disciple means living the way Jesus says to live? 
Is it really worth it? That's the question we want to answer. And I thought that it was appropriate to review chapter 10 with 10 points. Collective groan. (laughs) But let's just bounce through the chapter. And before we move on to chapter 11, let's just remind ourselves what Jesus has been saying about discipleship. And we're asking, is it really worth it? Is it really worth it to be a disciple of Jesus Christ? And so at the beginning of chapter 10, he lays the context. He's teaching the 12. He sends them out. He instructs them before sending them out. And, And the first thing that he says is that socially, it's challenging. It Discipleship. It's challenging. Notice one of the very first things he says. I'm going to tell you, go out, warn them that the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Verse 7 of chapter 10. Let your eyes go to verse 8. And the first thing he says to them, just about what they can expect in their ministries, is to heal the sick, raise the dead, cleanse the lepers, lepers, cast out demons. He's talking about socially things that are very challenging but that disciples are to deal with broken people. Right away, as Jesus teaches, I'm going to send you out. Now, I recognize that in this era of the ministry of Christ, and this apostolic era, and this has been referenced, that there was a healing ministry that was going on that we do not see present in the church today. If you do, please come tell me. I'm talking about being able to go to somebody who is incredibly sick, incredibly broken, blind, lame, leprosy, lay hands on them and heal them instantaneously and restore them to full health instantaneously in the name of Jesus. I am not saying that God does not heal. God heals, praise God. I am not saying that God does not answer prayer. He answers prayer. James is clear that the effectual, fervent prayer of a righteous person avails much. And we pray for God to heal people. And we pray for God to intervene and do miraculous things. And that God can interrupt the systems that He has in place in this world, even today. And anytime He chooses, God can do whatever He wants to do. But I'm telling you that in the church today, we do not see in an authentic way, we do not see people who can heal sick people or raise the dead the way Jesus did and the way His disciples and apostles could in that apostolic era where even sometimes like with Peter, His shadow could fall on someone and they would be instantly healed. We don't see that. If you see it, please come tell me. I want to go and I got some people we're going to go see right away. And then you can prove it to me. But no, we pray. And we minister to people. And we bring a cup of cold water in Jesus' name. But I just want to say that if you're going to be a disciple, you need to know that socially, it's challenging. I don't know if I like hanging with people that are broken. People who are sick. People who have leprosy. You see them all over, don't you? You know leprosy in the New Testament was that skin-rotting disease that was highly contagious. And it made people uh, outcast. And they had to separate them from the norms of society lest that disease would spread. It was very difficult and debilitating. And Jesus said, go to those people. You walk past people all the time. You might be uh, out walking down a sidewalk or in Walmart. And I use this now in a metaphor. And you see people with leprosy. You see where sin has broken them. And you see people who are just messed up. And people who are just outside of the realm of anything that you think you can do anything about. And that's exactly what Jesus is pointing out to his disciples. You go, and if you're my disciple, here's what you do. You minister to those who are lame and who are sick 
and who are dying and who are dead. And you cleanse lepers and you cast out demons. I like to avoid people like that myself. Socially, it's very challenging. I want you to see that financially, number two, it's very discouraging. It's Jesus with great words here. Now, acquire no gold or silver or copper for your belts. Okay, guys, you're not in this for the money. No bag for your journey or two tunics or sandals or staff. All right? You did. You can do everything you can do. And you got the power and authority spiritually to do what you're doing without paying. Now give it away for free. Don't market my gospel. My gospel is to be given away for free. And you're not about making a buck off of this gospel. And being a disciple of me is not about health and wealth and prosperity. And so financially, it's very discouraging. You're like, following Christ, but I really like money. And I really like to have some reserves. But what is this that Jesus is calling them to? Materially, I want you to see that it's limiting. Verse 10. Acquire no gold, verse 9, or copper for your belts, no bag for your journey, or two tunics, or sandals, or a staff. The labor does deserve his food, but materially it's limiting, and disciples were not about stuff. I recognize that all kinds of questions come to our mind, and we talked about this when we talked about laying up treasure in heaven and not laying up treasure for ourselves on earth, and Matthew chapter 6 and 7 there, and all the Sermon on the Mount. I mean, how could Tom and Heidi leave for Nigeria in two weeks? Next Sunday should be their last Sunday with us, by the way. I hope you're here to pray over them and to have a farewell with them. How can they leave for Nigeria if people here don't have some resource and people don't have some money to give? So what is Jesus saying here? Specifically, he's saying that if you're a disciple, socially it's going to be challenging Financially, it'll be discouraging. Materially, it'll be limiting. And physically, number four, it will be threatening. It's the part I really get excited about. Behold, verse 16. Let's skip down there. I'm sending you out as sheep. Remember this? Remember Dr. Shupi telling us we're supposed to be wolf meat? And you're going to go out with the gospel and it's not going to be pleasant. So be wise as serpent and as innocent as doves. Verse 17. Beware of men, for they will deliver you over to courts and flog you in their synagogues. I I don't like flogging. I mean, I don't think that this was lived out more thoroughly in anyone's life than it has been the Apostle Paul. In 2 Corinthians chapter 11, remember that passage where he says... Five times I received at the hands of the Jews 40 lashes, less one. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned with rocks. Three times I was shipwrecked. And night and day I was adrift at sea. On frequent journeys, I was in danger from rivers, danger from robbers, danger from my own people, danger from Gentiles, danger in the city, danger in the wilderness, danger at sea, danger from false brothers, in toil and hardship through many... Many a sleepless night, in hunger and thirst, often without food, in cold and exposure. And apart from other things, there is the daily pressure on me of my anxiety for all the churches. And who is weak and I am not weak? Who is made to fall and I am not indignant? 
The Apostle Paul knew exactly what it was as he recorded his testimony in 2 Corinthians chapter 11. He knew exactly what it was to be a disciple and to suffer physically for it. Tradition tells us that his body was mangled and scarred and it was a notable thing when he entered a room. We have no pictures of him. You say, well, okay, Pastor Van, I have money. I have material goods and lots of stuff. Too much stuff. I do try to avoid broken people pretty much, especially if they stink. I have not been physically threatened. You see what I mean? You should start worrying about yourself right about now, like I've been worrying. How come none of this is happening in my life? It happened to Chet Bitterman. I don't know if you know the name of Chet Bitterman. Um, Chet grew up in Lancaster, Pennsylvania. He's a little bit older than I. He was already on the mission field when I was in Bible college in the late 70s and early 80s. He's out of the Calvary, the great Calvary Church in Lancaster. If you're ever up at Lancaster on vacation um, or over a weekend for sight and sound and you're staying, visit the Calvary Church. It's an enjoyable experience. Great ministry there. I've been there many times. Chet Bitterman on March 7th, 1981 was found wrapped in a terrorist flag in Bogota, Colombia with a bullet through his chest in the back of a bus in a grocery store parking lot. For what? For translating the Bible into the language of the people. They held him hostage and they found him. He physically suffered for the cause of the gospel. It could end up that way. I'm not talking about making up suffering. I'm not talking about figuring out a way that I should somehow suffer and somehow, therefore, I'm more spiritual. You might as well just, you know, go home and turn on the garbage disposal, ram your hand down. I'm suffering. I'm suffering. We don't make up nonsense. We don't do stupid things. But the more I look at chapter 10 and as it progresses, he goes from his disciples to whoever. And this suffering theme is throughout the passage. There's a significant cost. And I find that I'm very comfortable I don't suffer. Physically, it's threatening. Legally, it's intimidating. Look what it says in verse 18. And you will be dragged before governors and kings for my sake. He's doing it, you'll recall, to bear witness before them. It's going to be a privilege for some to have an audience they've never had before, like Kim Davis in Kentucky, to name the name of Christ and say, this is why I'm doing this. And all of a sudden, she's God's voice in front of all of the legal system and the, and the court system. I don't know if you agree with what she's doing or not. This is the, uh, the dear county clerk who refuses to give out gay marriage license because of her biblical conviction. You could say she needs to quit her job and get out of there. Maybe she does. It's her decision as a conviction before the Lord, and I honor and respect her. It is interesting that the testimony of Scripture is that God has had His people embedded in governments that are far more pagan than ours. I'm thinking of Nehemiah. I'm thinking of Joseph back in Egypt under the Pharaoh. Daniel under Nebuchadnezzar and his counterparts, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. I mean, you can't make up 
more difficult government structures under which they served. And God had them there. How about Esther? Strategically placed in the middle of the hierarchy of government. So pray for Kim Davis. She's living out what it means to be a disciple before Christ. Legally, it can be intimidating. Relationally, it's heartbreaking. Look at verse 21. Brother will deliver brother over to death, and the father, his child, and children will rise against parents and have them put to death. This goes on. Let your eyes go over to verse 35. For I have come to set a man against his father, a daughter against her mother, a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. A person's enemies will be those of his own household. I don't like this. I love my family. What does it mean? At one level, it means what Tom Jesser referenced to me just the other night when we were together. He said in Nigeria, a Muslim family had a child except Christ and they poisoned the child to death. Father against child, child against father. The gospel divides. That's not allowed here. At the least, it's Christ calling us to be so in love with Him and so committed to Him that every other love of our lives is as hate. But at some level, legally, it's intimidating. Relationally, it's heartbreaking. I want you to see in verse 22 that personally, it can be humiliating to be a disciple. Remember, it is defined as discipleship. Personally, it's humiliating. Personally, discipleship is humiliating. Look at verse 22. And you will be hated by all for my name's sake. Oh, that's fun. Get made fun of, get ostracized, get talked about behind your back. What did you do? You know, you're just the Christian in the group. We let our eyes glance through the passage and we see in verse 34 that potentially it's life-threatening. He said in verse 21 that parents would even have them put to death. Verse 34, do not think that I have come to bring peace on earth. I have come to bring, not to bring peace, but a sword. The result of the gospel is that people die. The gospel doesn't initiate it, but it's the response to the gospel. So potentially to be a disciple is to die like Chet Bitterman. Number nine, emotionally, it's overwhelming. Look at verse 37. Whoever loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. And whoever loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. Emotionally, what do you do with that? It's just incredible. I have an affection for the life story of John G. Payton, a missionary... Um, he was born in 1824, died in 1907, and it would have been just a few years before our Civil War was launched. He grew up in Scotland that John Payton became convinced and committed that the gospel needed to go to the, what is the New Hebrides Islands in the South Pacific. And there he reached out with the gospel to cannibalistic people. It wasn't long after he was only married two weeks when he set sail on the ship to go. It was only months later that he buried his wife in the sand on the beach of the island where he lived with cannibals. 
and their brand new son dying of the fever there, digging the grave with his own bare hands in the sand and then sleeping next to it for the next few days to keep the cannibals to come from coming to dig it up and doing what they like to do with that. But there's an account in his journal where he wrote about leaving home and leaving his father. And I was struck by this. It'll take just a second to read. We're talking about being a disciple and that emotionally it's overwhelming that the gospel can cost you. Are you sure it's worth it? John Payton was talking about leaving He was on his way to Glasgow from home. He's in Scotland. He was there going to study theology and medicine. And from there, after being married, he would leave for his mission work. But he was leaving his father and he would not see him much after this at all. And he wrote this account. He said, my dear father walked with me the first six miles of the way. His counsel and tears and heavenly conversation on that parting journey are fresh in my heart as if it had been but yesterday. And tears are on my cheeks as freely now as then, whenever memory steals me away to that scene. His tears fell fast when our eyes met each other in looks which for all speech was vain. He grasped my hand firmly for a minute in silence and then solemnly said, God bless you, my son. Your father's God prosper you and keep you from all evil. Unable to say more, his lips kept moving in silent prayer. In tears, we embraced and parted. I ran off as fast as I could and and went about to turn a corner in the road where he would lose sight of me. I looked back and saw him still standing with head uncovered where I had left him gazing after me. Waving my hat in adieu, I was round the corner and out of sight in an instant, but my heart was too full and sore to carry me further, so I darted into the side of the road and wept for a time. Rising up cautiously, I climbed the dike to see if he yet stood where I had left him, and just at that moment I caught a glimpse of him climbing the dike and looking out for me. He did not see me, and after he had gazed eagerly in my direction for a while, he got down set his face towards home, and began to return, his head still uncovered, and his heart, I felt sure, still rising in prayers for me. I watched through blinding tears till his form faded from my gaze, and then, hastening on my way, vowed deeply and oft by the help of God to live and to act so as never to grieve or dishonor such a father and mother as had he had given me. The appearance of my father when we parted has often through life risen vividly before my mind and does so now as if it had been but an hour ago. In my early years, particularly when exposed to many temptations, his parting form rose before me as that of a guardian angel. It is no Pharisaism but deep gratitude which makes me here testify that the memory of that scene not only helped to keep me pure from the prevailing sins, but also stimulated me in all my studies that I might not fall short of his hopes and in all my Christian duties that I might faithfully follow his shining example. You willing to say goodbye to your children for the gospel? You love Jesus more than your children? Not only potentially is it life-threatening, but emotionally it's overwhelming. And finally, number 10, daily it's very demanding. Look what he says at the end of the chapter. 
well, towards the end, verse 39, and whoever finds his love, verse 38, and whoever does not take his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. Whoever finds his life will lose it. Whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. Luke says to take up your cross daily and follow after him, dying to self, he says. This is the reality that every day, I'm not looking somehow to be damaged by the gospel, but the gospel drives me in such a way that I process now everything about my life. I order my steps. I order my business. I order my home that every day I'm taking up my cross, dying to self, that what I am all about is the gospel. And I'm a disciple. And so there it is, our review of chapter 10. Is it really worth it? Socially, it's challenging. Financially, it's so discouraging. Materially, limiting. Physically, threatening. Legally, intimidating. Relationally, heartbreaking. Personally, humiliating. I hate you. Potentially, it's life-threatening. Emotionally, it's overwhelming. Daily, it's very demanding. Take up your cross Be willing to die for me. Be willing to, for this cause of the gospel, adjust your agenda to inconvenience yourself, to short yourself in all of these ways that Christ would be seen in me and that his gospel would go forward and that what I am about is not me and my agenda, but what I am about is about Jesus. Do you see why I'm worried about myself? I'm not sure this is true. And I'm worried about my church. I I don't want God to mess with us. But I want our drive for the gospel to be such that the natural outflow and outpouring would look something like what Jesus describes. So we have to answer the question of the day. Is it worth it? It is discipleship. Is it worth it to be a disciple if all this stuff is true? Well, you'll be relieved to know that the answer is yes. 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 And it'll only take a few minutes, but I would like to just touch upon the biblical evidence as to why we'll not run long. Yes, it really is worth it. It really was worth it for Chet Bitterman to take a bullet in the chest. Say, how can that be? It really is worth it for his parents to have cried those tears at his memorial service in the auditorium of Calvary Church. It really was worth it for John Payton to lie down on the beach next to his wife's body in the sand. Say, how could it be worth it? How could it be worth it? Jesus gives us a few clues. Verse 39, whoever finds his life will lose it. You find all the fulfillment in this world that you can find. And guess what? You're going to lose it. It's moth and it's rust and it's corruptible. Jesus has already taught all of this stuff. This is just the natural outworking of living out the Sermon on the Mount. That's what this is. Chapter 10 is what chapter 5, 6, and 7 look like when you live it out. He also said, whoever loses his life for my sake, they will find it. And there will be a joy and rewards. Things that our minds know very little about. Was it worth it? For my friend Tim Wagner to deny 
Joe Paterno's scholarship offer back in the 70s in the glory days of Penn State to play football and to go to Bible college and go to the mission field? Is it worth it to deny himself at that level? Is it worth it for the disciples themselves in this story to leave their father and their boats and their nets to follow him? Is it worth it? The answer is yes. And let me quickly say why. And by now we will go just a touch long. It's Luke chapter 16. This will not take long, but I just want to show you foundational evidence as to the why it's worth it. Why is discipleship worth it? Luke chapter 16 is a very familiar story. It begins with verse 19. We'll not read it. This is the story that Jesus told called the rich man and Lazarus. It's likely a true story and not just a parable because Jesus named names. Seems like a real story. And it gives us a snapshot into eternity future of people who die without Christ. That is, they have ignored the cross They have lived proud and arrogant. They don't need Jesus. They don't need forgiveness. They don't think they're that bad of sinners. They think their good works will outweigh their bad works. But they have no righteousness that can allow them to come into the presence of a holy God. And they have ignored their future destiny in this earth. They have missed the opportunity in this life to prepare for the next life. And that man was a rich man. And he had a beggar named Lazarus who picked up crumbs under his table. And I want to go right to the heart of the story. The rich man, after he dies, is in hell. And he's suffering torment. And it's horrible. And Lazarus, he's in Abraham's bosom, is what the New Testament and the King James called it. The idea is, he's in the presence of of godly people. And in this story that Jesus tells in Luke 16, and you should read it and remind yourselves of it if you're not familiar to it, it's as though there's a canyon in between and they can look across, but they can't go across. And I want to make the point in verse 24, the rich man then calls out, Father Abraham, have mercy on me and send Lazarus, that dirty, rotten, slimy, pus-laden beggar to dip the end of his finger in water and cool my tongue, for I'm in anguish in this flame. Abraham says, it's over, buddy. And you missed it in your lifetime to prepare for this. And it is irreversible. Now look at verse 27. And he said, then I beg you, Father Abraham, is, this is the rich man talking to Abraham, then send him to my father's house. Verse 28, for I have five brothers so that he may warn them, lest they also come into this place of torment. Listen. We have reason to believe, based on this story, that people who are lost for eternity apart from Christ and are in torment, and it is a very real, literal hell, I understand the Bible to teach. It's overwhelming. We probably compartmentalize it in our mind and don't really process it. The reality is that they are in torment forever. And what the longing of a person in hell's heart is, is that somebody would go tell my brothers not to come here. It is interesting in the story that what the rich man thought was that if somebody would rise from the dead, that that would so impress everybody that they would believe him that it's true. And Abraham answers and says, if he doesn't believe the scriptures, he won't believe if somebody rises from the dead. Talking futuristically about when Jesus rose from the dead, they don't pay attention to him either. That's the power of the word of God right there. Number one reason that it's worth it to be a disciple 
is that the message demands it. The message is so important. And this is what Jesus was teaching his disciples to go and teach his gospel and call people to repentance and save them for all of eternity. Don't avoid broken people. Give them the answer to everlasting life with Christ. Secondly, it's Matthew 28, and you don't even have to turn there if you don't want to, but I will reference it quickly. This is the Great Commission. And it says, Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. The second reason it's worth it for discipleship is because the mandate depends upon it. Not only does the message itself demand that we be disciples, but the mandate depends upon us being disciples. You cannot make disciples if you are not a disciple. You have to be a disciple to make a disciple. Therefore, you're not living out the mandate if you're not a disciple. Pretty clever logic, wasn't it? A simple pastor. We know, number three, that the master displayed it. Luke chapter 9, the Son of Man doesn't even have a place to lay down his head. Hey, Jesus, I'll come follow you, the guy said. He said, let, first of all, though, let me go bury my father. He's sick and about to die. And Jesus said, let the dead bury their own dead. Come follow me. That's loving me more than your family. That's becoming homeless for Jesus' sake. In Luke 9, the master displayed it. And, and from our text and our teaching... Is the student above the master? The teacher? Is the servant above the master? Is the, is the student above the teacher? The answer is no. So if the master lived it out, what is the student supposed to do? And finally, number four, why is it, why is it worth it? Not only does the message itself demand that we be disciples, and the mandate depends upon it, the master displayed it, but... The moment, and I'm putting that in quotes, defines it. This is Matthew 25, and with this we end. This is that very familiar story of the parable that Jesus told about a man going on a journey. And before he left on a journey, he was evidently very wealthy, and he left resources to his servants namely five talents, two talents, and one talent among three guys, and then they were given the responsibility to produce with those talents. And the point of the story isn't about money really at all, and it's not about talents like playing the piano or the trumpet. The point of the story is that the master who goes on the long journey is Jesus, and the valuable goods that he's left behind is the gospel, and the whole point is that he will return. And that's when the moment occurs, the quote, the moment and that moment depends on discipleship. That was the moment where it says in Matthew 20, 25, and it says, now after a long time. Does that sound familiar? Is Jesus coming back? Not for a long time. Maybe never. Maybe not in our lifetime. That's what they thought. The master's gone for a long time. And the master of those servants came and he settled accounts with them. And he who had received the five talents came forward, bringing five talents more, saying, Master, you delivered to me five talents. Here I have made five talents more. His master said to him, Well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful over a little. I will set you over much. 
Enter into the joy of your master. There's the moment. The moment is the master comes, my life is assessed, and he invites me into his joy. Do you want to miss that moment? Listen, I am not talking about a work salvation. I am not talking about being left out of heaven. I do worry about people who all they care about Jesus is their ticket to heaven. I prayed to receive Jesus as my Savior. I'm going to heaven and that's it. And you don't care squat about anything else. That's not how it works. This is a transformative gospel. And it brings change. But I'm talking about that moment when the master returns and he says, I've left you my goods. Now, what did you do with them? And I'm telling you that your discipleship is all about that moment because what you do with the goods that Jesus left you has everything to do with what kind of disciple you are. And you don't want to miss this moment. This moment is what really it's all about. For our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, to look at me and say, well done, buddy. See, that's the moment when Chet Bitterman's mom and dad will know that it's worth it all. And that's the moment when Chet Bitterman's kids and wife will know that it was worth it. And that's the moment when John Payton will know that sleeping on the beach was worth it. That's the moment when Tim Wagner will know not playing football for Penn State for Joe Paterno was worth it. And just being a disciple is who I am. And that's all I am, and that's all I want to be, and it's worth it. Let's pray. Father, we need help understanding this. These are challenging passages of Scripture. And we confess our desire for comfort. We confess our love for this world. We confess our doubts about the next world. So grow us in our conviction that our lives would be all about the gospel, driven by Christ, driven by this message that the voices of hell cry out, longing for people to go to their loved ones and share that message so they don't have to join them there. Father, would you please help us to live in such a way that the gospel oozes out of our lives And should it cost us financially, materially, physically, legally, relationally, may it all be well with our soul. And may we live for the moment and not waste our lives with our temporary pastimes. So teach us and grow us, I pray, and grow us in our love for Jesus. It's in his name we pray. Amen.